Hello and welcome to This Week, a podcast that brings you conversations about Africa in the news, from pop culture to politics, from the comical to the serious and all corners of Africa. We bring you controversial news and themes with a fresh, educational, informative and diverse perspective and challenge long-standing beliefs and ways of thinking and doing things. My name is Eva and I'll be your host for today. In the meantime, make sure to subscribe to Leaders of Africa this week in your favorite podcast app. We are on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and more. Again, welcome to this week. Akwaba. Hi, everyone. How are you doing? Good. Great. Oh, wow. How are you today? How are you, Gloria? I'm doing great today. Doing good. Thank you, Eva. Wonderful. I know there is a lot for us to talk about. So let's just jump straight into our conversation. And I want to start with you. Gloria, what is on your mind this week? So one of the significant stories that we're being discussed this week is the news that Germany has finally recognized that it committed a genocide in Namibia between 1904 and 1908. And so during that time, Namibia was a German colony known as German Southwest Africa. And so during that period, 65,000 Hereros and 10,000 Namas were some fall into the desert while some others were taken into concentration camps where they were tortured and sometimes they were left to die of hunger or sometimes they were, sh- they were shot. And so after six years, it took a while, it took a really long time, but after six years of negotiations between the Namibian government and the German government, they've reached a deal. First of all, that includes publicly recognizing that it was a genocide, apologizing, and then as a first step towards uh, reparations, the German government has pledged one billion U.S. dollars that they will pay to the Namibian government as uh, their first step towards recognizing that they did something wrong and trying to amend that relationship. And so that money is meant towards infrastructure health and education, particularly for the communities affected. We're talking about Ereros and the Namas who are minority communities in Namibia. While this recognition is important, taking responsibility is just important. And it's the basic thing to do. Mm. It's the first step. It is important that Germany has done that and they've also apologized. But there still is a lot of debate surrounding reparations. And so Mm. the $1 billion that is to the government and it's not a once-off payment. This is money that will be sent to Namibia over a 30-year period. And uh, the debate is that, can there be reparations for a situation like that? And one of the main complaints is that the communities affected were not directly involved in the negotiation. So this is something that took place at mm-hmm. a very high level. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so there's that really discontent within the, the, the affected communities that this $1 billion does not necessarily reflect their will. There are other things that communities wanted. There are things such as memorial, honoring the memory of the people that were lost. There are some of the arm, the body parts which were taken from Namibia to Germany that sits wow. in museums, libraries. And so there's so many things involved in this. And at this moment, the debate is still on the aspect of reparations. And I'll be curious to hear your opinions on this. Well, this is a really, really gruesome story to begin with. And as you talked about it and, you know, talked about some of the body parts, which are even still in Germany. I mean, it had me wondering about that question you asked and it, it, it should rightly be asked. I mean, what does reparations mean at this point? Because the fact that the indigenous people themselves, the communities that were affected were kept out of the dialogue. That alone does not sound fair. So it makes the process sound like it started off on the wrong foot because, I mean, there's a whole lot of conversation going on about how inclusive justice is as it is today. And again, at the end of the day, what does justice mean to different people? So I think that, in my opinion at least, I feel that at this point, it's still based on through, through a Western lens okay, this is what we're giving to you as reparations. Because in the beginning, I think they didn't even have reparations as part of the conversation. They're like, okay, we'll acknowledge we did this, but we're not paying anything. Then now they're paying something. But I mean, if the communities that were affected didn't have a voice in that, then who is to say that 
that should be categorized as a reparation in the first place. Because I think I've had some conversation around the communities wanting at least some form of reparations in the form of buying back the land because a lot of land was stripped from them and so many of them have become landless. And we know as Africans that we do depend on the land a lot because we need it for survival, but most of the land was coercively taken and is owned by the Germans who make up less than 1% of the population in Namibia at the moment. And again, that question, can money really pay for the pain, the suffering, the loss of culture, language, history, and so many things that went on in that genocide. I find this uh, issue very interesting because I could remember when I was at the age of 15 or 16, one of the books I read that really turned me off in life was the book, The Species of Late Moshut Kashima Wapiola. He dedicated mm-hmm. a whole chapter in that particular book, a compilation of his book. A whole chapter was dedicated to reparation because it was the first African that made reparation an international issue. He attended United Meeting of the United Nations and demonstrated how our people, our great grandfathers, brothers and sisters, mothers, were humiliated, killed, you know, and taken out of the shores of Africa. And he was calling on the need for them to be paid a whole Africa to be paid a whole more of money. It was so written in a beautiful language. There was no time that I read a particular chapter without crying, without having a nightmare. I didn't experience it. But what I read from the book, from that particular chapter, is still a nightmare until today because I find it difficult to process. It's a massacre. It's a genocide. It's a dehumanization of the people of Great Africa. And that is why... When they say they want to pay a certain amount of money, I say, for what? But I do understand one thing, and I give something to the leadership of Germany, accepting that they were unjust to the people of Namibia. Other people in different parts of the world, they don't want to accept the same responsibility. That is just one okay. thing. But you don't be a judge in your case. So we need to take this to the next level and start treating it, and stop treating it as a case of a developed country and an underdeveloping country. Since they've admitted committed a genocide, they kill people unjustly, they deny them of their land, they deny them of their resources, the next thing is to go through a proper litigation so that we determine the real value of what needs to be paid in penalty. It's not because the penalty is enough to pay for what we've lost, for what great people of Namibia, what they've lost. But it's for us to have justice prevail over the process. Germany can still be deciding over the process. We don't want to assume that Germany and the people of Namibia, they have equal power. So the situation, position of Germany in the negotiation table, what that means is that Germany is still going to decide and determine the terms and conditions of those negotiations, which is unfair. You killed people, you committed a genocide, and you're still a judge for the process. It's a shame on us all over the world that this is happening, that we haven't taken it to the next level. I appreciate the fact that they want to the fact that they committed a genocide, but I still believe it's unfair. It's unfair to justice. It's unfair to the humanity in us that they are still prevailing over the process of adjudicating what is and what is war not that they are going to be paying. It shouldn't be that. But I say, I accept the fact and applaud the fact that they have accepted that they committed a genocide. I believe strongly we should be looking at this from a different point of view when it comes to getting justice done to people whose people were killed, you know, children were killed, pregnant mm. women were killed, lands were taken over. And they have used some of, they even took some of our people back to Germany to develop their country. So what is the value of this in the other development of Namibia? And you go back to the book written by Walter Rodney. You see, a lot of memories are coming up that reminds me, because when I was growing up, one of the things I really made up my mind I was going to do for the continent of Africa was to continue the advocacy of repatriation was to continue the advocacy that the colonialists committed against our people. 
when they came visiting and they disrupted the entire history, the entire institution, the entire culture, and the entire pathway to the development and progress of the continent. I think we're all in agreement now that no amount can make up for what had happened in the past. I think it sounds like we're all in a consensus on that point. One of the things that I wanted to raise is whether this conversation is about really about the past versus the present versus the future. I think in my mind, some of these recognitions are not necessarily about dealing with what had happened in the past because it can't be dealt with, but rather sending a signal of the fact that these atrocities have happened and that we should avoid them in the future at all costs, right? So it's a signal to the future. It's an embrace of human rights to lock ourselves into that human rights way of thinking. And what's really interesting in this respect is that it's taken very long for countries. And we're not just talking about Germany. We can talk about this in a broad sense as well to recognize Mm -hmm. that they engage in this behavior. For example, there's one case in the news outside of the African continent that really shows this, which is the case of Turkey and the genocide against Armenians in Turkey. Turkey refuses to acknowledge that it's been 100 years, right? Just by the fact that Turkey someday acknowledges that is a very big signal of perhaps the country's embrace of human rights and to, to begin to have a national conversation about these issues. So I think one of the things to think about, because we can't compensate what has happened, as Ghana said, and the atrocities had taken place, but it can allow us to think about a greater embrace of human rights. So I think what's really nice in Namibia, at least, is there's a bit of a space for that conversation to take place, because not only can Germany signal that embrace, but Namibia can also signal that embrace of human rights as well. And I think, Violet, you brought up that point that Namibia also needs to do more as a country to think about the inequities that are present there and and redressing them. So I think that's good. Mm -hmm. But I think there are some countries that are more on the authoritarian end of the spectrum that also want to have this conversation about reparations, Mm -hmm. about the colonial era. And I think in this case, it's a bit a little bit more complicated because I think one has to have that more democratic human rights space to have that conversation both internally and internationally as well to begin to have that conversation. Otherwise, you'll acknowledge what has happened in the past, but it also needs to be instructive at home as well. So it's instructive abroad and at home, in my view, aim towards the future. So I think that's also has to be part of this conversation is the signal that sends for the future. I agree with what you just said because there is political from the German side to to look forward to to something better when it comes to human rights. Nothing like you you've, guys have said it all. There's really no repairing something of the genocide that was done 100 years ago. The damage has been done been so many years right now. There's nothing that we can do humanly possible to say that we've fixed that. That's, not, that's impossible. But we can definitely look forward. And there is a political will from the German side because, in fact, five years prior, there was one political official who apologized. At that point, the country was not even to admit that it committed genocide, but it was just one person who apologized and the, the, the government sort of backpedal and distanced themselves from the comment saying no, that that was said in the wow. personal capacity. It was not, uh, this was not a representation of our government until today where we have arrived here and now we have uh, the public recognition and all of that. And also two years ago, between 2018 and 2019, Germany did return some of the artifacts that it took from Namibia. Not all of it, but there was a museum that returned some of the stuff that they had. And so we definitely need to work together. When there is a political will like that and there's significant steps that are being taken, definitely from the Namibian side, I wish the government had involved the local communities. That's Mm -hmm. for me personally, that was my only concern. And then I wish they involved them into this process so that we can together the communities can move forward with a, a process, a decision that they too, you know, can approve of. First of all, I, I don't understand why this took so long for them to come to this negotiation to recognize that this was a genocide because there are plenty of evidence to show that they did this, they did that, they committed atrocious acts against the people of Namibia. So why did it take them so long? And why is it that the even the fact that one person came out and acknowledged that something like that happened, they tried to distance themselves? You know, this is telling us a lot of things that the West is not ready mm-hmm. to recognize 
the pain and some of the things that it caused in African countries and other places all over the world. Because with Germany now beginning the conversation of trying to, in a way, for me, I don't call this reparation because no amount of money can compensate what they've done. You know, no amount sure. of money. And I think they were a little bit hesitant because the moment they said this kind of precedent, the moment they said this example, this states, other countries are starting going to demand for other things, you know, and also has to come to the issue of the West returning artifacts to African countries. And I remember in France, they were talking about the fact that can Africans actually preserve these things by themselves? It's a lot of things that is going on. They are not ready to realize that some of the things they did were harmful. Even the people as of now that justify colonialism, that felt like it was the right thing that needed to be done. Africa needed to be civilized, you know. It will take a long time. And as you guys have said, it's good. This is the first step in a long process that needs to take place. Glad that they've recognized it, but there is still more to be done. And the fact that they left the community out is still not right. And what process are they taking the community through for them to heal? Because they are descendants of some of these people that were tortured, that are still alive, that probably the memories of their relatives are still haunting them all. When you think about it, it still brings painful memories, you know? There are some people that still have the scowl of the past. There are places that they can see and it reminds them of these things. What are the process are they taking this community through? Is there any sort of reconciliation? Is there any source of communication going on to help them heal mentally, spiritually, physically, and all sort of things? So that amount of money that is going to be spread for a long time and is actually going to go into more economic development, you also have to think about the people, you know, what are you doing for them? Now that you mentioned the money, I just have a question that I want to throw out to the team because it is eating at me. So apparently they're going to give them $1 billion or thereabouts. But let's think about the time value of money and the role of inflation. So if you tell me you're going to give me $1 billion today, but you're going to give it to me over 30 years, we know that $1 billion won't be $1 billion in 30 years. At the end of the day, really, how much money are they paying? That's the concern to me. And uh, I see this thing very differently. You can kill my children and they set in the condition. It's an injustice. I mean, it's still part of playing this game of we know better. We are teaching them how to live life. Yeah. It's disrespectful. There, there are no two ways about looking at this issue. This needs to discontinue. It runs contrary to the principles of justice. It runs contrary to the principle of fairness. And it's wrong contrary to the principles of dignifying humanity. When you kill somebody, you go to their neighborhood, I kill your son, I kill your daughter, and I'm setting condition for peace. It's not done. And this is where we need to come out and speak up. The fact that they are holding up and we are saying we are commending them is because maybe we felt they've done something that people don't want to do. But that's the right thing for, do, for them to do in the first system. So you've been quite critical of this negotiation. So one of the questions I had for you, what would you like to see done concretely? I'm curious yeah. to, to know. What needs to be done differently is this. They need to be diligently prosecuted. When Africans have issues, African leaders, they set up a court to be trained African leaders, particularly for <laughs> African leaders. Nobody else goes there. It's international court, right? Because it affects places like Africa. In this situation like that, we need a court of such system to be in place. And the people to be in this kind of institution, there must be a fair representation of those that are affected by this situation. We are going back to the issue of justice. Let's play by the rules of what it is. I'm feeling this because I may have been affected. Maybe some of my generations have been killed, you know, butchered as a result of Things like this, when the colonialists visited Nigeria, they do all sorts of horrible things, dehumanizing mm. things. They destroyed history. They destroyed a whole continent. Please go read what I wrote. Me. There's this tension here, right, of restorative justice versus re retributive yeah. justice, right? And I think you've just expressed that you're more on the retributive side of justice, which makes sense. The only concern one could have is that when we're looking at some of these issues, some people are alive, some people are not. So the question also becomes a practical question in a legal sense is, 
you know, who is liable, who is an individual, because courts like the International Criminal Court are working on an individual liability level, right? It's they're not trying countries. The ICC is not a court for countries, it's a court for individuals. So you have to make sure that you're making sure if you are going to use that mechanism that you can try the people that you want to try. But obviously, there are other perspectives that there needs to be more restorative efforts, efforts aimed at truth and reconciliation, research about what happened, making memories known. So I think what's really nice here in our conversation is there are different approaches to this. And amongst those that are dealing with and are talking about these issues of past atrocities, there are different approaches that one could take. I think we need to consider the case of is retributive justice really enough? Because if I take your daughter, God forbid, and kill her, and then you came and took my child and killed them, does it take your pain away? You see? So I do think that as much as retributive justice has that, because I mean, an eye for an eye and the whole world goes blind. So even if we could go through a retributive perspective, but we need to ask ourselves at the end of the day, how much healing does it bring to this community? How much does it make them feel wholesome at the end of the day? Because I think we're missing the point here. The, I, I think the people who need to be listened to the most at the moment are those communities that were directly affected. What do they mm -hmm. want? Because while we all are talking about this issue, how much are we listening to those communities? Because one, as we have already noted, they have been excluded from the conversation. But what do they want? Perhaps they might not even be focused on retributive justice as we know it. Perhaps they just need to be acknowledged. Perhaps there's certain things that mean more to them than we think. So I, I still think that both the Germans and the Namibian government dropped the ball when they didn't include these communities directly. And I think that at the end of the day, they should be the ones to determine what justice looks like to them. And that is what needs to be done. Accepted. Yeah, this is, this is very uh, true. Yeah, this is very justice. true. The, the communities are the ones to decide mm -hmm. what they want and what they think justice mm -hmm. is to them. So right now, I will move on to Peter. Peter, I have a quiz question for you. So this African country in the Horn of Africa held an election today. This mm -hmm. country, although operates as a nation state, is not been recognized internationally or by the continent as a country but they go on they have their own passport they have their own currency they are running their day-to-day -day activities and even they held a democratic election this week so what is the name of this country thank you for that last part of the question and all the clues there that helped me a lot <laughs> the answer is somaliland correct thank you um, most of us don't talk about somaliland um, but somaliland is a country that we should all watch out for they held an election and there have been debates in the international cycle that is this um, election going to lead to the recognition as a nation state? Because the countries like have their own currency, their own passport, their own flag. They are running their own day-to-day -day activities, but they're not being recognized. So there is more to talk about. This is a whole topic that we can elaborate on. And I hope that mm. we'll give it a talk in the coming days. So Peter, um, what is on your mind? Yeah, absolutely. So what's on my mind is the proliferation of this Bitcoin, or let's broaden it out, cryptocurrency <laughs> phenomenon in, in many countries. And you hear a lot of advocates of cryptocurrency suggesting that this could be the new wave or the new feature of development of a pro-poor agenda, of innovation in all sectors, energy sector, housing sector, everything, right? There's such great promise. And their great promise is talking about how this cryptocurrency allows people, individual people, to get into the currency market, to get into the economy, to access banking, for example, and things of this nature. But at the same time, there are some serious concerns. I think the one concern that's been highlighted in the news quite a lot is this concern of the environmental impacts. Because if anyone knows anything about cryptocurrencies, it requires a decentralized mm -hmm. network of bookkeeping. So everyone's kind of keeping the books of the transactions in different places. Mm -hmm. And to keep those books and to do the calculations that are necessary to keep those books, you need a high level of computing capacity. And so you have these huge mm -hmm. server rooms that are drawing 
massive amounts of electricity. I think there's been some studies talked about that in a short period of time, a year long of a country's use of electricity may be used in a short period of time. So there are some environmental impacts. But what I'm really interested here is the impacts on individual people. And what I say is this sort of the nexus between cryptocurrency on the one hand and the scam economy on the other. And the one new story that made me... And the one new story, okay. exactly. The, the one a story that made me think about this was a recent arrest by the EFCC. That's the anti-corruption body in Nigeria. And so they were going after okay. some of those who are involved in scams as they do in other areas. But they targeted this one uh, gentleman, Amos Shawanu Omotade Sparks. Omotade Sparks is an entrepreneur, self-described entrepreneur. And he had created a cryptocurrency called Pincoin. Pincoin is one of these cryptocurrencies, and there are so many of them, right? You go on any website, there are tons of them. So he created this Pincoin that was supposedly going to end poverty in short order in the country of Nigeria, as well as across the continent of Africa. So he started selling this currency to others, right? And taking money in through an app, for example. And then eventually, you know, people put money in. They also want to get money out because there's an expectation of large returns, right? This is part of the promise of cryptocurrency. And people weren't getting back their money. There are some evidence of that in the app store where people are like, I paid such and such Naira and I didn't get anything back, right? People are complaining. So the EFCC came in and they issued an arrest warrant for him. And then he was later, just in this past week, arrested for this cryptocurrency scam, or at least alleged scam, because at this point it hasn't been prosecuted fully yet. But I think it raises this concern of this proliferation of this cryptocurrency conversation, not just in African countries, but globally, and how it's going to interact with this scam economy. And I got some more on that later, but I'm curious what everyone's thoughts are. Are you equally as alarmed as I am about the potentials for this nexus that's taking place? I am terrified because it puts um, power in a lot of places and some of those places might be unsavory. And without meaning to be disrespectful, I still think that a lot of the population is very gullible. You can sell them anything as long as you have a smooth time, you know, and it, it it then exacerbates poverty eventually because, I mean, when people are poor and you sell them hope, they need it. And now if you're going to take their money, you're going to leave them even poorer. And I think one thing that is even more interesting in this case is the intersection of Bitcoin and religion. And we all know on this panel that religion has been used for a long time to scam Africans. We believe so much in religion for several reasons, but we also know that the church business is a multi-billion dollar business that people are using to take advantage of very poor people because they're selling them hope. And now that the whole cryptocurrency has come in, and like I said, it puts power in a lot of places and some of those places are unsavory. Now, when you have the cryptocurrency, the scam economy, I'd like to borrow that down from Peter, getting married to the church and then projecting as a united front to the people, then I worry so much because Peter, I think a pastor or a bishop, something, the yeah. owner of Zuga coin. Let me jump in on Zuga coin because, you know, now that Pincoin has kind of been wrapped up, right? Or is least in, in some cloud <laughs> of suspect around it. Those who are on the Inc Nation, so Inc Nation is this organization that this entrepreneur that I mentioned created. They've now pivoted on Facebook and they said, okay, leave Pincoin aside because there's a cloud over it. Let's now invest in this new one. And that new one is called Zuga Coin. And you can see Zuga, the Archbishop Zuga here. And just on that point of this nexus between religion now and Bitcoin, And one of the biggest concerns in this case is that they're now using religious figures or those who purportedly Mm -hmm. are in religious figures to uh, engage in in promoting cryptocurrency. So if you look at their Facebook page, the the Pincoin page here, you can see a lot of pictures of this bishop, uh, Bishop uh, Zuga, Sam Zuga. You can see his official page there. And they are hyping this coin that he created again 
uh, a coin that he's saying is going to alleviate poverty, that's going to bring change across the entire country of Nigeria. There is even a video here, and I'm going to play it, that shows a futuristic video that is a town that is funded by Zuga Coin. Let's just take a look at that. Guess what is happening? Zuka coin is trending. Everyone is happy. Crypto transaction. You can buy a stone and you can make some sales and you can. I, I think I could see Ghana there dancing for just a moment <laughs> to the song. <laughs> but no, the, no, but the point, the broader point is you see this proliferating and Violet. You're absolutely right. We've always seen this church capitalism, as I like to call it, those that are purporting to be religious, but at the same time, combining this with a sort of an e-commerce or a commercial aspect to it. But this is in the context of cryptocurrency, and I think it's even increasingly dangerous. When your pastor tells you to do something, you're most likely going to do it. So yes, if some Zuka tells his flock to buy into it, they are going to buy into it, but I mean, to what end? So it is a very terrifying prospect. To me, the crypto, whatever, is a candidate uh, for scam business for many reasons. I can remember one of those days, I think it was in 2013 or 2014. Yeah, 2013, when I visited Nigeria. And uh, part, part of that was uh, a pre-doctoral study work, you know. I was lodged in the hotel at the University of Ibadan. And uh, one of those guys I met was one of my boys when I was in the University of Lagos. He's one of the big actors in crypto business in the continent. He's one of the biggest boys because he was one of those people that actually jumped on me. He lectured me for two hours and I was sleeping. And I was like, young man, I need to sleep. Ghana, you gotta put in money. I know you have this money. I said, I see fraud. He was shocked. I said, I saw fraud driving. And I saw, you see, easier part to wet driving. And I said, this is going to be a catastrophe to the continent especially to Nigeria. And when you look back today, that's exactly what is playing out. And it, it's building on the mindset, the mindset that, you know, a lot of institutions, including religious institutions, fostered in the country, that all you need in life is to make money. You don't really need to work hard. You need to work smart. In the past, when I was growing up, the culture was to work hard and make money. Now, the culture is to work smart. Part of that smartness is doing nothing to earn money. I can see this playing out now. And the other thing is that when you look at Nigeria, all sorts of policy schemes in the past, they have really gained a lot of votes in the country, where people will tell you, all you just need to do is to invest $100, and within a year, you are going to have $1 million. You have all these kind of things in Nigeria and gaining youth. And you can see the crypto stamp building on this as well. Because there is a mindset that allows it to germinate. And that is what we are seeing. And the other part of it is all right because of sophisticated fraud. When you go to Nigeria, you possibly won't see anything like a Zuga city. You know, because some of these guys that are into fraud, they do it in a way that they create an image of reality that really doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. You may want to recall, there is this guy who, who was living in Dubai. Now he's currently living in the United States. They call him more P-Poppy. I don't know. You know, I'm not an internet human, you know. You know, he became so popular in Nigeria. And people knew that this guy was a scammer. He's into scam. That's all he does. But if you knew the, the new middle of the people that followed him, why? Because people are celebrating faith. You know, this is one of the biggest issues that I have when it comes to crypto issue, because it's really building on an existing mindset that makes it possible for you to foster and perpetuate crime. And there are many issues with crypto. The issue of environmental one that Peter mentioned is something that will come back to the uh, to our public health and individual health. When you use that much amount of electricity, the implication is that it's going to further depreciate the existing depreciated ecosystem conditions in our climate. Mm. And whatever affects the climate negatively is going to come back to affect our individual public. So there are deep issues from that perspective alone. But I'm more worried that the crypto world has created 
a viable environment for crime to take place. And it's so difficult for us to dictate because people promote it as a smart way of doing business, as a smart way of making money. So the issue to me now is this, how do we take our businesses? I don't know. For me, it's how this cryptocurrency market leaves ordinary people vulnerable. Because cryptocurrency mm. is not a legal tender in any jurisdiction. There's no government that is uh, regulating this cryptocurrency. Uh, I, mean, I mean, it's not official. It's not like there's no government body mm. that sets value for cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. The value is just based on how the supply and demand is fluctuating. That means you have to be somehow educated in this field to even trying to get involved. I don't mm-hmm. think ordinary people who are not specialists in this area should get involved. And people that are taking advantage, of, especially the poor, they know that they're doing that on purpose and they're doing that so that they can enrich themselves. So it's just so wrong in so many ways. I really don't know what can be done as a solution, but just educating people, I think, would be an important thing to do at this moment. To just tell people about the realities of Bitcoin. You're not safe. Anything can happen. Your money is taken. There's no way where you can go mm-hmm. necessarily and get that back. Yes, the guy got arrested, but I don't think people that lost money are going to get mm-hmm. their money back. So people should be educated in the fact that you are literally alone. You are on your own. If anything happens, know that you've lost everything. Personally, I do not understand the whole concept of cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure that a lot of people have tried to explain it. That is the new coin is a way to make transactions easy across countries, across continent. And as we talk about, the environmental impact of this is so, so big. It's huge because they are using electricity. And think about Nigeria. How are these people able to supply electricity to maintain this, to run all this cryptocurrency thing behind closed doors? Is it batteries and generator and this like that? Already Nigeria is having power crisis. So imagine this thing in the economy of Nigeria, it's easy going to, I mean, exacerbate the issue that is already there, the existing power crisis. So for me, this crypto thing, I, I did not understand it. The beginning of this year, we had a guy who came to explain it to us, which was more interesting. But one of the questions that I, I asked him was, is this not creating a room for money laundering? You know, because the money, crypto is not regulated. So if I have like one million in crypto, I can move money around without anyone tracking it or anything. And it's going to be create a room for drug dealers, for those Yahoo Yahoo boys to move money around without the government or anyone watching them. So for me, that is the danger behind it. It's also going to, in Nigeria like this, it's also going to uh, result in moving money out of the continent. Already, a lot of African countries are struggling with illicit financial outflow. Every year, you have about trillions amount of dollars that is leaving the continent. Governments are not able to track it. They are even fighting it. They've not been able to come up with a solution as to how to stop this illicit financial outflow. Then crypto comes in. It's going to like exacerbate all the issues that we are having on the continent when it comes to yeah. the movement of money, people moving money to save havens, people evading taxes and things like that. This is really scary. And also the way this crypto thing is being advertised in Nigeria. I've been watching some YouTube clips and young people are telling other young people that I invested in cryptocurrency with this amount of money and I've made this amount of money. I became a millionaire instantly. So go and do it. And it's really scary. It's not promoting hardware. It's not promoting innovation. It's just telling this kid to put in like say $20 for $50,000 which I feel like is not substantial. Just building on what you said, Eva, is regulation, right? And so a number of countries have considered, you know, some sort of regulatory framework, including Nigeria is having a conversation about a regulatory framework. Now, in response to that, those who are in that space are critical of that, right? The Sam Zulu character we introduced earlier is saying, We shouldn't have the government getting involved in this. Part of this has to do with this sort of more populist message that is there, right? The government wants to control everything, wants to kind of harm the poor people. And here we are, you know, the diligent people trying to find out how to create personal wealth for everyone, including poor people. Again, you can hear that narrative and it's very, very appealing combined with, again, what Violet, we were talking about earlier this has legs, particularly when governments aren't trusted by people, particularly when currencies, even within a country, do fluctuate and seem to be sort of 
less regulated than they should be. So again, it creates this permissive environment for this to happen. And so the key thing here, I think, is number one, to have some regulatory framework in place, right? And also one that can also prosecute when there are scams related to it. But it also is incumbent on governments to ensure that their own banking sector, their own currencies are supported, are regulated themselves, and are accessible to all people in the country. Because that begins to solve some of the underlying permissive conditions that are leading to this Bitcoin phenomenon in places where these conditions are are present, in my view. So I, I think there's a lot that the government should do, on, not just in regulation. There's so much we have we can talk about on Bitcoin, but we have to move on. This cryptocurrency thing is something that we all have to kind of try to break it down uh, to understand the mystery behind it. So probably some, one of you can help us review that mystery. So Violet, I'm, I'm coming to you. I have a quiz question for you, actually, Violet. Twitter deleted a tweet by an African leader. And even suspended the leader's account for 12 hours, saying that the leader's tweet violated its abusive policy. Who is this leader and from which country? <laughs> That's Ghana's president, Buhari. <laughs> At some point, we'll have to discuss it, for sure. Yeah, yeah. we, yeah, we do. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, go to it. Yeah. Yeah. we'll discuss this. I'm sure that Twitter has pissed off Buhari, uh, President Buhari, a lot. So. <laughs> We'll talk about it. <laughs> for now, we'll tell President Buhari to cool down. He will solve his problem for him. So, <laughs> so Valet, <laughs> Valet, what is on your mind for this week? What's on my mind today is basically how English is creating an identity crisis for us on the continent. And it's interesting because we've just been discussing the issue of the long-term effects of colonialism with Namibia's case. And now here we are discussing about how English is creating um, an identity crisis for us. And I will let you know in, in one minute. Well, because English is one of those colonial languages, at least we know your English, French, Portuguese. However, it, it, it's becoming quite a, an issue of concern that English is becoming a language that is displacing most indigenous languages for Africans. So for example, there is a story of a girl from, from South Africa, Kaliso, who originally spoke three languages, including Zulu and other indigenous languages. But then when she joined primary school, her parents took her to an elite primary school where they spoke English and they, they moved to a neighborhood that was predominantly white. And she was bullied, not because she couldn't speak English, but because she couldn't pronounce the words as well as, you know, she should have pronounced them in English. And eventually she became very distant from her people, her black friends, and she ended up not making friends with other black children because they did not speak good English. And then another story came in from Nigeria and well, the girl didn't want to give out her identity, but she, she did say she comes from an Igbo family and her, her parents took her again to an elite school and they really focused on, again, English, pronouncing words correctly and all things English. And they wouldn't allow her to speak pidgin. And she did even say one time she was watching one of the Nigerian movies and it was in pidgin and she responded in pidgin and her mother scolded her. But at the end of the day, when she had to you know, communicate to her grandmother, there was no language. And... So many stories are coming up like this, even in Ghana, where now people are questioning how how African are you if you can't speak your native tongue? You know, if you can't tell your grandmother you love them, if you can't talk to other people in your native, because English is displacing our native languages and it is being associated with being book smart. Only the smart kids can speak English. Mm -hmm. It's being used as uh, a language of access. If you can't speak a certain type of English, then you are not it because I did see an example where, again, one of the, the people were saying that they would go to a restaurant in South Africa and if they spoke their native languages, the staff at the restaurant would think that they were not there to order expensive food. But if they spoke English in the right accent, the right pronunciations, then, oh yes, everyone would be scurrying to serve them because then they would be able to afford the expensive foods. But I mean, guys, how preposterous is this? It is preposterous to me because 
it's like inviting a guest into your own house, even though I doubt that we invited the colonialists, but we East Africans did invite them at some point because we didn't know what would come after that. But it's akin to inviting a guest into your own house and then they come and take over the running of your home and say, you can't do this anymore because I say so. I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are and how you think this is affecting us. And I think that the major question that I want to put to the team is, what do you think about spanning our indigenous languages and telling our children, no, you can't speak your indigenous language, you need to speak English? Yes, you need to be proficient in English because it is a language of exchange, access, and all those many good things. However, it can coexist with our indigenous languages and you can learn them at the same time or know them at the same time. Yeah, for me, I have a story on this topic. Uh, This is very um, interesting to me personally, I'm sure to all of us. But for me, I think learning to speak English or French or Portuguese plus your vernacular language should not have to be an either or. You can have both. And I think there's an extent to which our parents neglected encouraging kids to learn their native languages. That is very important. I'll just briefly share my story. One day I was visiting the UN headquarters in New York. Because I was uh, in journalism studies, the news director allowed me to visit the news division. And so I went upstairs and he asked me, which country do you come from? I said, the dear, I said, oh, that's saying you, you must be speaking Swahili. Let me introduce you to your brothers and sisters. I went in there to talk to the Swahili division and they're like, oh, cool, you speak Swahili. Let us interview you since you speak Swahili. I realized at that moment that I did not know how to speak Swahili. The Swahili that I learned to speak, I learned it like that, picking up in the community. But in my home, my parents never encouraged us to speak Swahili. French was like the language that you have to speak correctly. You have to speak. If you make a mistake, then you have that is going to correct you. At school, you have to speak it right. But there was nobody to do the same thing for Swahili, for instance, and other native languages. And so I did end up doing that interview. They really helped me out and I had to edit a lot of stuff. But I remember one thing one of the producers told me, Tommy, that your language is the thing that makes you unique. Because even after you come out into the world, you can live wherever you want, you will compete with people who are native English speakers, native French speakers. You may never be at that same level, but the thing that will make you stand out is your language. It's the very thing that makes you different. It's the other thing that you bring to the table when you go out there in the world. And he shared a bit of his stories like, I did studies in this area and this area, but now I'm making good money using my native language. And I came out of there with a changed mindset. So that is a story I wanted to share with you. I think that this is something that I've seen parents do when I was back home as a kid. I was brought up speaking my native language, my mother tongue, like all my siblings. And also we live in a neighborhood where everybody was speaking different languages. But there were instances where I saw certain parents, like some parents in the neighborhood, who were forcing their children to speak just English. You know, they were telling them, speak English. They call them, they speak to them in English. But when they are speaking to someone like me, they speak in a local language, you know. I saw some parents that didn't encourage their children to speak even the tree or the gar or like the ever and things like that. And I've been to homes where like the parents just spoke English, nothing else. The only time they switch to the local language is when they want to say something and they don't want the children to hear, hear <laughs> the local languages among them. So that is the parents doing that. And I've seen that a lot. And even for me, it took me a while to be fluent in English. Until I went to school, I wasn't speaking any English. So, and now I really appreciate that because right now I personally can speak different languages. I, I can't just speak my mother tongue. I can speak other languages that I take from the neighborhood. And my younger siblings are doing the same thing. So I, I believe that we should encourage people to speak their mother tongue because if you don't do that, we are going to lose those languages in the long run. We are going to lose them. And if we lose them, what do you have? One of the issues that trouble me is this, is that uh, we need to understand what is actually incentivizing this. It, it, it didn't just start today. It started a long time ago. Back in the days when we were in primary school, when they say vernacular speaking is outlawed, the vernacular they are talking about is my local language. That's what yeah. they call vernacular. They don't consider it even yes. a primary language. They call it a vernacular. And they could be the hell out of your life when you speak vernacular in the classroom. Yes. That was a penalty. So they were telling yes. you, that's not a language we accept you. I'm telling you, the hell out of your life, those yeah. teachers. 
That was the way they were operating in those days. So many students who were struggling to speak English, particularly chosen from very disadvantaged homes, they became distant from the class activities. And until now, I still think about those kids that it affected their, you know, intellectual capability development. As a result of that, because we were always like, you know, left behind, they don't want to speak, because the only way they could express themselves is vernacular. Then growing up, I saw this thing, this colonial legacy, because it came with colonial legacy when they introduced Western Thai school into Africa. And people, the elite of them, were not the hardworking people who could speak the local languages. They were the people that could speak the language of the colonialists, which was English language, French, or what have you. You know, when they introduced these things into Africa, so people wanted to join that elite because what they see as symbol of success, part of that is speaking mm. English and then getting educated in the language of the colonial masters. You know, so part of what sustained that at the point in time now became this issue that, oh, my father was left behind. My mother was left behind. My uncle was left behind. I didn't want to be part of being left behind generation. So everybody were forced to start doing it recently. About three years ago, I hosted some family members. You know, I, I invited them over and uh, they said, oh, they gave back to the kid and they said, they want kids to be speaking American English. I said, which one is American English? <laughs> I said, you know, I don't know what to American English. I said, they have accent here. They said, they are not aware they have accent. I said, they have accent in the US. Just like the way I have accent. Just like the way everybody have accent. And I'm like, they have accent in the United States too. What do you want to speak American English? They are. We don't know what is happening. That in fact, that one of the ways currency for making money in Nigeria now is that I have to be speaking the way they speak. I said, which way? Turn me into, an, into something else. They're like, no, you have to be saying, the, you know, the way they speak it, that when you get to Abuja, that is a massive business. That people will take you because you spent some years in the US and I will run it up because I can hear the talking drum. They will take their kids to you and ask you, we want them to be trained in how to speak in American dialect. And they pay up to close to $1,000 a month. Just because they want me being trained in Nigeria to speak in the American way. And this is another wave of colonialization that Africa is experiencing, which is not only going to lead to the death of languages, but is going to lead to, to what I call fake personalities taking over the future of Africa. It's a very great conversation. Thank you very much. That is really insightful. There is more to talk about. But for now, I have heard a talking drum. So we have to bring everything to an end. We would like to thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us again for our next episode of This Week. Make sure to subscribe to the Leaders of Africa This Week in your favorite podcast app. We are on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and more. Join our Discord community to continue the conversation and follow Leaders of Africa on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram for all new and great content. And that is all for this week. Thank you. Until next time.